0: Well, good morning again, and turn with me to your Bibles, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, you'll find it on page 888 in the church Bibles, and this morning we're looking at a story. It is a story of the woman of Samaria, and I'm going to read it for us, John chapter 4. Let's hear God's Word. was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Jesus said to them, "'My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest.'" Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and He stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. This is God's word. You and I know that racial animosity is all too common today. And in this story that we're looking at together this morning, the Samaritans were viewed at the time by the Jewish people as half-bred, religiously compromised traitors. And so for a Jew to associate with a Samaritan that is, to eat from the same dish as a Samaritan or even to physically touch a Samaritan, would render that Jew unclean, unable to participate in the ceremonies of the temple and needing to be ritually purified. The Samaritans were viewed this way because of some history. So often this is the case, isn't it? History clouds the way we view different groups of people. And the Samaritans were seen as those who had descended from the people who had opposed the rebuilding of the wall of uh, Jerusalem. If you read your Bibles and you read the book of Nehemiah, you can come across these uh, Sambalat and his other henchmen who tried to stop uh, Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. And they actually brought a sort of army of Samaria to try and gang up on the Jews as they returned from exile to rebuild the capital city. And, like the northern part of Israel before the exile, since that moment the Samaritans had increasingly adopted ways of worshipping that did not necessitate them worshipping at the temple in Jerusalem. And it was uh, for these very sins marrying those who did not fear God, worshiping God at the high places. The book of Kings talks about this over and over again before Israel goes into exile, the high places where they're worshiping. That is, they built these pagan centers of worship outside of Jerusalem to, to indulge in other kinds of polytheistic, pluralistic worship at the time. These high places that, uh, that, uh, that they were worshipping, refusing to listen to God's prophets. These very sins that the Israelites had been themselves sent into exile. So it's hardly surprising then, is it, that by the time that Jesus walked the earth, religiously minded Jews would refuse to take the shortcut from Jerusalem to Galilee in the north via Samaria And instead take a very long detour in order to avoid any possibility of any contact whatsoever with these religiously compromised half-breeds. They did not cross over from one part of town to the other. But Jesus now, John tells us, has to go through Samaria. Literally, it was necessary for him to go through Samaria, verse 4. And this necessary journey in our story this morning leads to this surprising conversation and an unexpected harvest. Why was this journey necessary? Jesus is making a point By the end of the story, we find that it is in Samaria, Samaria of all places, that Jesus finds a following. There is a strange harvest that occurs here among these people who have been rejected by the Jerusalem elite, as well as by all right-thinking, pious Jewish people at the time. So here we have, sandwiched in the middle, on the one hand there are the Pharisees who are rejecting Jesus, verses 1 to 3. In fact, probably scheming to throw division between Jesus and John the Baptist's disciples over this matter of baptism. They're sort of passing around saying, look, he's baptizing more. Aren't they baptizing and trying to rule by casting these two groups asunder? So we have that. And then the people from Jesus' home area of Nazareth, by the end of the story, verse 44, were reminded that they would not accept Jesus for a prophet has no honor in his home country. They'd known Jesus since he was a little kid. He was just a carpenter's boy. They couldn't take him seriously. Sandwiched in between are the Samaritans. The Samaritans of all people. They accepted Jesus. It was them who came to Jesus. And I think John deliberately structures it this way to tell us that they are examples of where Jesus will find his most ardent followers still today. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The gospel is a gospel for all nations. And so often it is the Samaritans who are most ready to hear the gospel story. We we struggle with this, don't we? I mean, uh, can any good come out of Nazareth, they were saying about Jesus? Perhaps you say, can any good come out of Wheaton? I thought Wheaton was just those those kind of people. Surely there cannot be a, a move of God here that is radical. He could come out of Wheaton. You remember what Jim Elliot used to say? Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt. Wherever it is that you sense is in God's will for you. Wherever you are, be all there. Uh, uh, Perhaps... You have to be here for some reason. It's, it's necessary. You don't feel you have a choice. Maybe it is this necessary journey where you'll find the unexpected harvest you've been looking for your whole entire life. This is the common Christian experience, isn't it? I remember when I was uh, just 26 and starting out in, uh, in ministry, I'd done some mission work and then I was beginning to work on staff at a, at a church. And it was beginning to sort of find my sea legs. And I was looking around for someone, as it were, to show me the ropes of this working for a church and getting used to Christian ministry. And I'd had throughout my life various mentors who I still greatly appreciate and value. But I was looking for a different kind of mentor. I, I didn't want one of these, you know, the, the guy who stands behind the pulpit and looks so wonderful and seems like they have all the answers. I wanted a real mentor, you know, a radical mentor sort of thing. I was looking for an older, godly man who would not have some agenda to force me into his model of ministry, if you know what I mean. But just would come alongside and shepherd me and teach me and show me the ropes and correct me when I needed correcting. And I'd been praying about this for some time and I just couldn't. There are lots of godly Christian men around, but I couldn't find someone who seemed to fit the bill, the right kind of person. I remember sitting down with an older godly woman on staff at the church at the time and sharing this very frustration of mine that I was looking for an older godly mental figure, not not someone in full-time Christian ministry, but just a man of God who could help me figure out life at that stage of life, and I couldn't find that kind of man. I remember her looking at me and saying, "'Josh, do you think it could be a woman?' And yes, indeed, she did mentor me and my wife, showed me the ropes of Christian ministry and the sort of things that they don't tell you at seminary, but really you need to know, otherwise you're going to get into big trouble. It was unexpected. And perhaps your necessary journey is going to be the place where you find A strange harvest too. And here this necessary journey leads next to a surprising conversation then, verse 7. He's talking of this woman of Samaria, you see. (laughs) That would have been deeply surprising to her and it is going to be very surprising to his disciples when they come back. As complementarian as Jesus may be, After all, he selects only males to be among his 12 apostles. There's no doubt he did. As complementarian as Jesus may be, he is no misogynist. He respects women deeply. He appears first to women as the risen Jesus from the dead. Against all cultural norms at the time. And here, astonishingly, against another set of cultural norms, he initiates conversation, not just with a Samaritan, but with a a female. He starts with the point of his own need. I I think this is fascinating. So often, I find, people are willing to talk with us When instead of offering them something, we ourselves ask for something. He doesn't offer her a drink. He asks for a drink. Uh, This approach, humble as it may be, defeats the implicit power agenda of charity that uh, can hurt more than it helps by going vulnerably to ask for help rather than offer help. And she is astonished that Jesus would talk to her and by Jesus' humility the conversation begins. And uh, he follows up the opening the opportunity by making a startling statement. He can offer a living water, this water of life, a, a metaphor for the the regeneration of god 's spirit, the life to the full that John is. John, the author of the gospel, is, is picking out from the teaching of Jesus to encourage us that it's in Jesus where we find real satisfaction, this living water, this water of life. But the woman is entirely confused by the statement. She, she thinks that Jesus is talking not about a spiritual rebirth but about an even better kind of well than this historic Jacob's well around which they talk. We will find today that people will sometimes be confused by our terminology as Christians. We as a church, as a worship team, work hard, therefore, to use terms that actually people understand. And the byproduct of using terms that people actually understand is you find that people who grew up in the church now begin to understand what those terms mean too. And so uh, Jesus then begins to offer a sort of follow-up explanation when she's so confused. He is talking of the kind of water that springs up to eternal life, verse 14. This is a spiritual life. This is an eternal life. Forever, you see? That's what I'm talking about, a woman of Samaria. Not not this Jacob's well, it's a metaphor for regeneration, for new life that will go on forever. Well, she still misunderstands. Uh, she thinks that what Jesus means by eternal life or the, the water that will go on forever is that somehow Jesus is some kind of magician so that if she puts her trust in Him, then she wouldn't have to keep on coming back to this, this well at the sixth hour, the midday hour, which is not when most women came to the well because, well, that's strange. The woman is there at midday, and she is experiencing being ostracized, apparently, as we'll find out why in a moment. She won't have to keep on coming back. Jesus will solve this problem. She, he's some kind of magician. She still misunderstands. And so now Jesus tries a different tactic, not just clarifying what he's saying, but getting to the deep wound. Go, call your husband, and then come back. Sir, I have no husband. Can you hear the pain? Jesus, of course, with divine insight, exposes her, what shall we call it, serial monogamy. One man, another man, another man, another man, another man, another man. She has had five husbands and the man she now has is not her husband. You you certainly speak truth, woman of Samaria. But do you notice how gentle Jesus is as he exposes the wound? This is indicated in all sorts of places in the story. One of the most remarkable, I think, is that John, the author of the the gospel, does not record for us the name of this woman. This is quite deliberate, I believe. For when she becomes a follower of Jesus, all the shame of that serial monogamy is removed, it's gone. This is a private conversation between her and Jesus. Perhaps you struggle with sins from the past before you came to Jesus, and you still carry them. You still feel shamed by them. They're gone. How gentle is Jesus? My dear brothers and sisters, if Jesus, the holy God, is this compassionate With uh, the woman of Samaria's sexual sin, how much should we, the church, filled with sinners ourselves, refuse to cast stones of judgment? For some reason, sexual sins are ones that we particularly find it hard to be gracious about in church. If someone has deep religious pride, we sort of give them a pass, you know. They're the kind of person who at the prayer meeting, when you give them a the moment, doesn't pray for 30 seconds. They pray for 10 minutes, and they recount the story of the whole Bible from Genesis through to Revelation, you know, and throw in every kind of possible impressive jargon they can think of. No one talks about that. But sexual sin, ah, get them out of here. It's not the approach of Jesus he compassionately confronts and we need to do the same every second in our day every second twenty eight thousand two hundred fifty eight internet users are viewing pornography Every second. And it's not just men. One in three visitors to pornographic internet sites are women these days. A uh, professor of neuroscience from Baylor University describes how the chemical dopamine causes the brain to experience pleasure in normal romantic committed relationships actually it's the same chemical that's released in uh, in cocaine use and pornography activates that very same dopamine attraction system chemically and of course then generates addiction. What is the solution? The solution is Jesus' combination of compassion and confrontation of love and of truth. In other words, we need to know that God loves us. No one is going to be honest about their sin until they're assured that they are loved. We need to know that God loves us. He does not love us because we behave a certain kind of way. He loves us because he is love. He loves us. And we also need to know that in Christ, we are not a slave to sin. We are not a slave to sin. Clear confrontation and compassionate conversation. Perhaps uh, this week you will look for accountability with a compass, a ministry that some people here at the church began, or with uh, your small group, or with a godly older mentor. With Christ as Lord, you can walk in renewed joy and hope, just like this woman of Samaria. The next part of this passage is, I think, so hard to sort of underline in the way we get it, but actually when you, when you look at it right, it's, it's really quite funny Humorously, the woman replies that she can see that he is a prophet. Just put yourself in that situation. Uh, Sir, I have no husband. You're right in saying you have no husband. In fact, you had five husbands, and they're not your husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. And then, of course, she introduces a a topic of theological controversy. You know, I've come across this so many times. I call it the, when all else fails, punt to theology move. And perhaps throw in a little flattery as well. Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Let's talk about something controversial. But again, note how tender Jesus is. He allows her to change the topic of conversation and answers her question that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, verse 23. That is, the divisions between Samaria and Jerusalem will disappear through the worship of Jesus who is for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all nations. So, genuine worship centers on Jesus, exalts Jesus, celebrates Jesus, honors Jesus, and as it does so, it draws in Samaritans, all races and types, to rejoice in His goodness. It is no longer defined by place. It is expressed by spirit and truth as we worship Jesus. Now, even though this is a sort of change the topic of conversation moment jesus does not lose the opportunity to teach some very profound um, truths that we need to understand very clearly especially in our day in in the western world worship is a word that if undefined is almost useless today people think of worship as music or worship as a meeting only or Worship style or even worship wars. Well, the terminology has changed. But still today, followers of God are split by how they worship, if not where they worship. Some insist on wearing certain kinds of clothes. Uh, sort of priestly Garments. Others insist on um, a particular sort of uh, decor or aesthetic. Lighting candles, or some insist that certain musical instruments must be used. Some in Samaria, some in Jerusalem. Some want the room darkened; others want it filled with bright sunlight. We talk of traditional worship, blended worship, contemporary worship, and somewhere along the lines we miss that the Father is seeking people who worship Him in spirit and in truth. The Father is a seeker. The Son has come to seek and save that which is lost, and the church is to seek those people who worship Him in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such worshipers. In worship, God the Father is seeking us. If we exalt Christ by His Spirit, through His Word, the truth, we will then experience Him. And to underline this, Jesus then, in verse 26, declares... I am, it's hard to bring it out in the translation, but Jesus here is drawing upon the Old Testament language for Jehovah, the Yahweh, the I am, the great I am is before her. And and he is the Messiah or the Christ that, that then should be the center of her worship. Perhaps uh, you have someone in your life, some group of people in your mind that you dismiss as impossibly unlikely to follow Jesus. Perhaps it's a, uh, a child or a parent or a, or a place or a person. Not so fast. It could well be that it is exactly such Samaritans through whom Jesus intends to do a remarkable new work. Look at China. All the missionaries kicked out of China, and now there are millions of Christians. Don't tell God that He can't have a harvest among Samaritans. And this unexpected harvest is the lesson that Jesus' disciples and then need to grasp from verse 27 to the end. They return and they're stunned to see Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman. They're, they're so stunned they can't even form a sentence to protest. Their mouths hang open in shock. Meanwhile, the woman is filled with speech. She goes back home and starts to evangelize. To witness. And so often this is the way, isn't it? It's those who most recently have come to Christ who are often the best bringers of other people because they're still in regular conversation with those outside the church. They have relational surface area with the community. We need to listen to such folk and uh, encourage them. The disciples, though, are still rather confused, and seeing that he has wanted something to drink, wonder whether he now also wants something to eat. They've gone to buy him food. Perhaps he's hungry. Jesus uses this confusion to teach them. His food is to do the will of God, verse 34. Now, of course, Jesus did eat and did drink. We are told early in the story that he was weary, and we humans must eat and drink to survive. But the real nourishment that we need, one that no food or drink can ever satisfy, is to be busy about God's work. could be that if you are feeling that you cannot find any satisfaction in your life, it could well be it's because you're not giving yourself fully to the Lord's will and work. The, the, the gas that the human engine is meant to run on is, is God's will and work. That, that's what we're made for. And if we do His will, then our life will increasingly be filled with satisfaction and spiritual fulfillment. This living water welling up within us over and over over again. What then does it mean to do God's will? Well, that's a good question. There have been countless books and ceaseless anxiety that have worried the tender conscience of serious Christians about how they can know whether they're doing God's will or not. And doubtless, uh, while God's revealed will is clear in the Bible and God's sovereign will clearly is working all things to His glory and for our good, doubtless sometimes it is hard to decide between legitimate goods as we seek to do what God wants. But there is here a principle that can cut through the fog. What does God's will mean? It means to be active in this harvest work. You see, the disciples, sensing the rejection from the Pharisees and not looking forward to another set of rejections from Jesus' hometown when they return north, have begun to say that perhaps now is not the time to reap. Don't you say four more months and then there is a harvest? No, Jesus, we're in a sowing phase of the ministry, not a reaping phase. Don't get too high expectations. But Jesus says, look, now is the harvest as all those Samaritans walk towards him like Heads of corn are down the pathway. Look, now's the harvest. That woman, that Samaritan, these Samaritan people, they are the harvest right now. And indeed, many of the Samaritans, through the woman's witness and then hearing Jesus' own words, come to follow Jesus. Jesus. For you to do God's will is to invite people to Christ, to connect people in care within Christ's church, to train people to follow Christ, to send people to serve Christ. The harvest is, is now. Be all wherever you are. Be all there. I think one of the devil's tactics is to make us perpetually unsure whether we are in the right place or doing the right thing open your eyes here is the harvest it's time to reap A necessary journey leads to a surprising conversation which leads to an unexpected harvest. You know, many people today are saying that uh, the Western church cannot have any more harvest. We live in times when the culture is turning its back on Christianity. And therefore, with the Pharisees rejecting and the Galileans despising, it is now time to put up the barricades and wait out the storm. We live in a Samaritan age, they say. Let us take the long detour around the culture And avoid as much contact uh, with the immorality of our day as possible. And here is Jesus. Sitting at a well in Samaria. Talking to a renowned serial monogamist Samaritan woman. showing us that it is exactly such a Samaritan place and a Samaritan people that is the venue for a strange harvest. In fact, we are presented in our day with an opportunity that the church of Jesus has not had in the West for many, many, many a decade. What's that you say? It was necessary to go through Samaria, and it is here in Samaria that the harvest is found. Let's pray together. sir i have no husband perhaps uh, this morning you sense Jesus' gaze on you at that point in the sermon in the in the in the story would you use this time now to confess to jesus Ask Him for His power and help. Perhaps there's a relationship that you know is wrong and you want to break off, but you cannot find the will or the power to do it. Ask Jesus, to give you that power. And would you commit to Jesus that before you leave the building this morning you will find uh, someone, perhaps a pastor, to um, begin accountability. Perhaps uh, you um, struggle with what it is that God is doing in your life right now, what it is that God's doing in the world right now. You read all the blogs and the news, and you, you, you just sense that, that, that the culture is going wrong and you're not sure what to do about it. Would, would you ask Jesus now to open your eyes to see the harvest that he has given you? Perhaps you are thirsty. Would you ask Jesus to give you living water? Our Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would, by your Spirit, give us such living water. And we ask this to the glory of God and in the name of Jesus, amen.